This is episode 45 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hey, I'm Jeff Sanders, author of the 5 a.m. Miracle book and host of the 5 a.m. Miracle podcast. If you want to find your own path to success, freedom and happiness, then stop what you're doing right now and start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my friend Tom Hefner. I put a picture up first day of class every semester and it's a picture of happy college students. And I say, is this a real picture of college students? And all 500 of our students start to laugh. And I'm like, why are you guys laughing? And I know the answer is, and they all just think, because they're so happy. Why is it so strange? And then I ask them, who has been stressed out in the past few weeks? And every hand goes up. And you see the eyes widen, because even they don't realize how stressed out people are. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. Today we're in for a real treat, and that's because we're speaking with my good friend, Dan Lerner. Dan is an expert in the science of happiness and success. He teaches a class on this very subject at New York University and recently wrote a book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. In just a moment, he's going to stop by with us and tell us all about the book. In our conversation, Dan and I will be discussing why now, more than ever, we need to focus on helping college-bound kids to thrive. There's some really interesting and, and, and really sad data behind this one, so you don't want to miss this. The most effective habits and practices that college students can adopt to help them achieve and succeed, including a crucial, crucial habit in their very first semester that can make or break their college success. The critical role nutrition, sleep, and exercise play in developing wellness and success, book recommendations to open our minds and our passion, and so much more. As a speaker, teacher, and strengths-based performance coach, Dan Lerner is an expert in positive and performance psychologies. His key theme is that developing a healthy psychological state has a profound impact on the pursuit of excellence, a message that he brings to students, high potential performing artists and athletes, and executives at Fortune 500 companies and startups worldwide. Following a decade representing and developing young performing artists with ICM Artists and 21C Media, which he co-founded, so he's also an entrepreneur, Lerner studied closely with renowned sports psychologist Dr. Nathaniel Zinser, focusing on coaching and performance enhancement techniques employed by professional Olympic athletes. Before earning a graduate degree in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, that's how we know each other, and Lerner is also a faculty member at New York University's Langone Medical Center and is on instructional staff in the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program at his alma mater. The Science of Happiness, that's the course I was telling about earlier, is co-taught with Alan Schlechter, and it's currently the largest and most popular non-required course at New York University. That's no small feat. That's a pretty large university with a lot of really great classes. And in the classroom and in his talks, Lerner integrates storytelling, humor, science, helping students and professionals apply his teachings into their lives with immediate benefit. 
Look, it's one thing for us to thrive every day at work and in life. And for Dan and I, we've studied the the science of happiness. So I feel like we, we've got that down, or at least we know some of the, the go-to things to do. But someday, you know, many of us will become parents. And for many of us, our children will one day, hopefully, go to college. And that experience can be amazing, could be terrible, or, you know, somewhere in between. And that's where Dan comes in. He's made college student success his professional focus for the past five years, teaching NYU students the science of happiness and and how to thrive. As parents or maybe future parents or even friends of future students, this might be the most important conversation you will listen to all year. And I know that sounds like a big claim, but I promise you this is going to be fantastic. We're going to have a lot of insights. So buckle up. And we're going to be digging into Dan's book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life and the habits and practices to help students succeed. But before we do, let's get to know Dan a little bit more. Dan, tell me about you being a kid. Where did you grow up and what was that like? Well, first of all, let me just say um, thank you again for having me on, Tom. And there's literally no pressure now that I know it's going to be maybe the most important conversation <laughs> that your listeners. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure all at year. all. <laughs> so, so thank you. Um, where did I grow up? Is that that was the question? Where did I grow up? And and uh, yes, yeah. uh, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, a huge, huge Pittsburgh fan still, even though I have not lived there for for twenty plus years. <laughs> but I grew up in a household that was really kind of. I guess unique. I guess everyone's upbringing is unique in their own way. Uh, but my parents are both professional musicians. Uh, my, my father was in the Pittsburgh Symphony as a flute player for 40 plus years. And uh, my mother was an opera singer. And so I had these parents who, who were doing artistic, who, had, who do artistic work and they were loving what they did. Not only they loved what they did, but they were doing it on a very high level. So, you know, my upbringing was really being able to watch people who were both successful. If we, if we're defining success as doing what you love and, uh, doing what they love, you know? <laughs> so my definition of success was doing something you love and doing it at a high level. That was really formative for me. So as I, as I pushed on and really thought about, um, well-being, uh, from that perspective, it, it, the way that I defined success was, was, was formulated there and it was important. When I, when I went to college, I thought about doing what my, my folks had done. I ended my freshman year. I called my dad and I said, you know, I think I want to do this for a living. I'd been playing cello at that point for, I don't know, nine or 10 years. Mm. And, um, he was thrilled and he said, wonderful. We, we will absolutely do for you what my parents did for me, which is not an easy thing to do as a child of immigrants, but, uh, we'll support you for a year. You come home at the end of this freshman year and you practice every day, nine to five in your room. And then you go off and you audition for, for music schools, for conservatories. And I thought, wow, that sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I like I'm in college, man. Like I have all these wonderful friends and wonderful experiences, and I'm and I'm playing ball, and I have a radio show, and I'm writing for the paper, and it's just it's a terrific thing. And I'm thinking I'm not going to go home and sit in my room alone. <laughs> so I, I I stuck it out in college, and I thought, you know, I love music, and uh, how am I going to pursue this? How do I pursue this field without playing the cello? And I looked around, and I did various uh, summer jobs uh, and spring break, uh, fall break internships. Uh, working for music festivals um, as a fundraiser, as a stage manager. And at one point, I, I met some agents. And I thought, wait, your job is to help musicians live the best life they can? That's amazing. That's what I want to do. And I realized very quickly uh, afterwards that that's not what they do. <laughs> they don't try to help them live the best life they can. They try to help them make the best career they can. Mm. And that was a big turning point for me when I realized, wait a second, I'm not interested in just helping people with careers. I'm interested in helping people realize their their uh, potential in life and in work. 
And that really drove the rest of my pursuits uh, after that. After I spent about 10 years in the music business as an agent, and then I left and went back to graduate school to study performance psychology and positive psychology and really with an eye towards how do you help a broad array of folks realize their potential, whether they are 12 or whether they are in their 40s or in their 80s, whenever it might be. And that's my uh, that's my nutshell of a story. It's a big nut. It's more like a coconut than a walnut. <laughs> like that's a coconut my nutshell than a walnut. Story. Yeah. Well, then how did you go from uh, – walk us through how you went from having that kind of – helping a broad array of people to kind of uh, niching down. Uh, I once heard, by the way, this is a great phrase, uh, the, the, the riches are in the niches. Um, but how did you go down oh, to uh, niching down to saying, okay, how do I help – college students become the best that they can be, become, you know, the happy, well, maybe not happiest, but um, to, to achieve that well-being. You know, it, uh, my clients for a long time after after I was an agent were folks who were really successful. So I would get, I would be working with people who were singing all over the world, performing all over the world, athletes, uh, big executives, those kind of folks. And they were wonderful. And they'd come to me often, say in their 30s and 40s, and say, I'm super successful. I'm, I'm not happy. Or I'm not, I don't have well-being. Let's use a more specific term. They would actually say happy. And this was a fascinating thing. When the college opportunity came around, and I got to say, you know, like so many things, as our friend uh, Dan Tomlosula would say, it was all about the timing. <laughs> the timing. Uh, I, I was really fortunate in that um, I had been introduced to a fellow who was teaching at NYU, and uh, Alan Schlechter, Dr. Alan Schlechter, mm-hmm. uh, and an adolescent psychiatrist who had just started that year teaching a course called The Science of Happiness. And we were introduced. He said, well, come on in and uh, sit in on the class. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I went in. I sat in on the class. And at that point, it was already a large class. You know, w- the class is about 500 people now. Back then, it was about 140. Mm. And I said, Alan, this is a great class and you're a wonderful teacher. But the challenge as I see it is that for a class called the science of happiness, there's not enough happiness, <laughs> right? I mean, a- a- Alan's a young psychiatrist. So, you know, uh, young or old doesn't matter, but he, he was, he was trained traditionally, mm-hmm. which is that we focus on illness. We focus on challenge. We focus on what we're trying to eliminate in order for us to move back towards uh, greater well-being. And that's so incredibly important. But the syllabus at that point was about 80-20. 80%, what do we need to get rid of? Stress, anxiety, depression, so on and so forth. And 20%, what does it look like to have well-being? And I was very frank with him and said, I, I think this could be an amazing thing for college students, but I think it needs to be rebalanced. And Alan, to his credit, to be open to these kind of ideas, said, great, let's rip it up. Let's take a look at it again. Let's see what we can do together. So I had this wonderful opportunity not only to work with college students, but to work with a really extraordinary guy mm-hmm. who had already been working with them in a different capacity and whose expertise was adolescent psychiatry, uh, you know, uh, adolescence, uh, young youth development. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to balance my growing expertise in positive psychology with his expertise in, in more traditionally oriented psychiatry. And what I, what I, what I realized quite qu- quickly um, was that these college students were a fantastic uh, group because and I'll come back to who I worked with before because the folks who call me in 30s and 40s would say, I'm really successful. I'm really unhappy. And I get the 18 to 24-year-old crowd and I'm like, listen, there are some habits that you are going to – you are in the process of forming or you will form. And they can lead you to great success from a traditional, uh, traditionally uh, um, defined success. But they won't necessarily make you happy. We have this wonderful opportunity to work with you to develop routines and habits that – and also an understanding of what success is in your own definition uh, so that you can develop a life 
almost as I had with my with my clients way back as an agent. It's not about just performing on stage. It's about what you do off stage, what you're able to find uh, fulfilling, how you thrive off stage as well. And I was really interested to see how those two things work together. And with this young crowd to see how quickly they could pick up those routines, what it was that they had to choose from, uh, decisions they could make that would allow them to realize success that was not just traditionally defined financial success or um, status success, but really success on their own terms, both at work, uh, both at school, I should say, and afterwards. Well, let me ask this question at the risk of sounding like an old curmudgeon. I mean, you teach at NYU. Go for it, by the way. Curmudgeons yeah, go for it. Go for it. Go say, for it. So, yeah. Curmudgeon away. Curmudgeon away. You teach at NYU. Uh, I actually teach at uh, the University of Maryland in the Academy for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And I look at that university. I look at that campus. It's amazing. The facilities are amazing. The food is amazing. The living spaces are amazing. People, they're, they're outside playing Frisbee when I go there. Everybody looks like they're pretty happy. Do we really need to worry about kids thriving at college nowadays? Because in my day, it was... No, I'm kidding. But and if <laughs> what so, are you worried about? Yeah, what are you, you worried about? You got in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I know, because the best four years of your life, right? <laughs> and that's actually it. The best four years of your life, I think, is the phrase that so many people grab onto. And especially us old curmudgeons, I will include myself in the curmudgeonly crew, right? And I remember my father saying it, my friend's parents saying it, this is the best four years of your life. So do we need to worry about them? Well, yes. <laughs> and, you know, statistics bear it out, actually, quite, I would say, beautifully, but uh, let me say uh, terrifyingly, which is, you know, if we look at um, Mer- American College Health Association poll of uh, well over 20,000 college students that came out in 2014, uh, 90% of college students will say that they have dealt with overwhelming stress in the past year. That's not just freshmen. That's each year, freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors. When I when I put that up, it's actually interesting. I'll take a step back. I put a picture up, first day of class every semester, and it's a picture of happy college students. And I say, is this a real picture of college students? And all 500 of our students start to laugh before I can finish the question. <laughs> I swear to you, they start to laugh. And I'm like, why are you guys laughing? And I know what the answer is. And they all just say, because they're so happy, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was, you know, well, what is it? Why, you know, why is it so strange? And then I asked them who here has been stressed out in the past few weeks and every hand goes up. I say, wait, wait, keep them up, look around. And you see the eyes widen because even they don't realize how stressed out people are. Mm. Now, if you want to dig deeper into those numbers, 59.3% of college students in that same poll have said they felt very sad at some point on campus. Okay, so you feel sad. You bomb a test. You're broken up. But 45% have said that they felt that things were hopeless in the past year. And 33%, I'm sorry, 31.3% of them have said that they've gone through work debilitating depression. Wow. At some point in the, in the last year alone. Now, that's a 2014 poll. A 2017 poll that just came out a few months ago. That last number of 31.3% has risen to 40%. So 40% of college students will now say that they've dealt with work debilitating depression at some point during the last four years. I'm sorry, at some point during the last year on campus. So we asked the question, do we really need to help them? But the numbers are extraordinary. Now, I don't even want to push into the question, that horrific, terrifying question uh, or topic of, of suicide. But that's going up too. Mm. So, you know, so we have what we can, we can call it the start, if not already being in the middle of a mental health crisis on campuses. And so our memories of college being wonderful and, and, and lovely and extraordinary um, have changed considerably. And, and again, I just point to that number of work to building depression jumping from 31 to 40% in just three years. That's crazy. It's, it's totally crazy. And it's really scary. I could get into asking why, but I think 
the million dollar question is more about how we're going to help them. So in your experience, both as an instructor at NYU in, in this, in your course, but also kind of, you know, as a, as a performance coach and expert, what are the most effective habits and practices that these kids that are becoming more depressed, getting more stressed out, what are the most effective habits and practices that they can cultivate to ensure success and, and, and well-being once they get there? Right. So, you know, that's, it's, it's a great question. It's such a, it's such a rich question. There's so many things you bring up. You bring up the idea of success. Uh, you get the idea of, of well-being. So we, you know, we can take them apart one by one. But let's start with our kind of Alan and my, and Alan and I teach this course together. We also wrote our book together. And also we're like best friends. Um, <laughs> so, and that actually brings me to the point of, of what the number one factor is that predicts a successful um, outcome in college. A, that you'll get through your freshman year. B, that you'll finish all four years. And that is friends. Finding a group, a sense of belonging on campus is extraordinarily important. Uh, so what we always tell our students is to find a group, find a team, join a club. If you played a sport in high school, keep playing that sport. If you're at University of Maryland, the odds are going to make the team are slim. But there's, <laughs> there are still intramurals. There are still other clubs. There are other groups that allow you to keep going down to the gym and playing ball. That's what you did. Yep. You know, if you played music in high school and it's something that you loved, you know, not not something that you were <laughs> forced upon you, then find a group to play with. If you love math, then find a club that loves math. Whatever it might be, find a group because a sense of belonging is, is extraordinarily important. Friends do so much. And Tom, Tom, you know this. And I think we, so many of us know the import of relationships because if we've had them, when you look at the data in terms of how we deal with stress, we deal with stress much more effectively when we have someone uh, close to us. We also are able to celebrate victories, celebrate successes much more robustly when we have a friend to share it with. So first and foremost, join a club, join a team, mm. so on and so forth. You know, I, th I think a another big factor is understand so getting a sense of what's reality when it comes to college, which is why I, I shared the story before about having people raise their hand yeah. if they've been stressed out and having them look around because you can sense in that room immediately click. People realize they're not alone. Even if they never get to meet the person across the room is raising their hand, they still know that they're not alone. So so adjusting your expectations, so to speak, to know there are going to be challenges when I go to school. I'm going to, there's a really good chance, a way better than average chance. I'm going to be stressed out. So not to go into it thinking this is going to be the best four years ever, but thinking there are going to be some wonderful times here. And there are also going to be some really challenging times here. I would say that, I would say that's, uh, that's, that's way up there as well. <laughs> Another thing I, I would talk about is really pursuing those things that you're most interested in, right? When we're engaged, uh, with uh, a topic that we're interested in, a pursuit of any kind, we're far more likely to not only be able to achieve our goals, as, as, as the literature shows, but also to have a greater sense of well-being. So um, the work that Bob Ballarat has done on passion, I find fascinating. When we are pursuing something that we are – oh, let me take a step back. The way that passions begin, and so many college students expect themselves to have to know what they're passionate about when they go to college or – know within the first year or know by the time they leave. And so they're they're seeking so hard. I, I have to be great at this. I have to figure out what it is um, immediately. But we find with the, in the research is that it takes on average about three years to figure out what our passion is. And college is the perfect place to do that, <laughs> right? Because you get to explore. The way that passions uh, are developed 
are they start they start with interests. Oh, I'm interested. So someone says I'm interested in French. I'm not going to say move to France. I'm going to say take French take French 101. Yeah. Right? That might lead to another French class. It might not. If I'm interested in psychology, take Psych 101, but don't declare your major immediately necessarily and put all that pressure on yourself. College is a great place to be able to take courses and say that's interesting. I'm going to take another Psych class next year, and then the following year maybe I'll take two, which is exactly what happened with a student I had who came to talk to us uh, last year. We had her as a freshman. I didn't know her because our course was our class is so big. She came and said, you know, I was a theater major. I was I need I knew I needed to take some sort of, you know, non-theater class. So I took your class. It sounded like it would be fun. And I realized I was really interested in psych. So the next semester I took another psych class. And then the next year I took two more. And then the next year I changed my major. And now I'm going back to grad school for psych and I'm thrilled. So she didn't walk into the class thinking, I know what I want to be. She walked in thinking, I'm open-minded. Mm-hmm. And so and I think that's so important for college students, not to go in thinking you have to know what it is you're going to do. You have to have a passion. You have to be successful. Rather, this is a time for me to explore and just be able to figure out what catches my eye and see where that takes me. Uh, and I think that's important because I think coming into college now, even when I was going into college as an undergrad studying electrical engineering at Penn State, there's so much pressure to declare a major. There's so much pressure to be like, okay, I'm going to take this class, this class, this class from both, you know, the, the administration, but from your peers and from professors and things like that. Wait, 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 wait. You're, you're missing on a, you're, you're absolutely right. Administration, peers, professors, but you're missing a very, very, maybe most important fact, maybe most important factor. Family. Parents, man. Yeah. Parents. Think of, I mean, I cannot tell you how often I, we get students coming up saying, I'm majoring in X, Y, or Z. I'm pre-med or I'm pre-law, whatever it might be. I'm in business. I'm really not happy. And why, why are you studying it? And the answer is 95% of the time, my folks. Yeah. All right. Now, for all the parents out there listening, I don't want to sit here and say, you know, um, you have no say in this. But the pressure that parents often and peers, as you said, but really pressure. Uh, expectations from parents and family have is huge. And it, it, it totally doesn't jibe with the question of if you ask parents, what do you most want your kids to be? And Tom, you have three kids. I have one boy, a 10 year old boy. You have three, you have like, you have like 17 children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like, you know, so if, if we ask this question of parents, what do you most want your, your kids to be? So I would be argue, happy. Exactly. And yet, that's not necessarily what we're asking for them. What, mm-hmm. we're, what we're pushing for is is one factor in well-being, which would be, I would argue, which would be security. Mm-hmm. We want them to be secure so that we know that, God forbid, something should happen or eventually something, you know, we won't be here, that they're okay, which is why so often, you know, so so infrequently do I find a parent saying, listen, it's really important to me that my kid studies painting. <laughs> Right. Or poetry. Right. That, that never happened, you know, because they're like they're pushing them to do, be secure. And and that makes all the sense in the world. However, if that security does not equate with their well-being, is that really something we want? And that's a big challenge. So finding a way to help students with that, clearly starting with the parents, is key. Let me pivot here a little bit and talk about my freshman year. So I remember my freshman year uh, really well, which is odd because some of the years in between, I don't remember that well at all. But it's a time for me where I met friends that would become my best friends. So when you talk about relationships as being a key factor, you're like, yes, and I'll, I'll yes, and that all day long. Uh, <laughs> my my best friends uh, in life are from college, right? And But it's also a time where I may have developed some bad habits. Uh, in particular, I remember... 
you know, eating, starting to eat poorly, perhaps yeah. drinking some alcohol. <laughs> Never. Not until Never. your senior year, though, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely yeah. not. <laughs> In the aftermath of that, my freshman year, my, my freshman 15 probably became, you know, the freshman 30 or maybe even 40. And it took me, like, no joke, a solid five to six years before I learned or at least trained to myself to eat healthy again, nutritious foods and, and like lose that weight and keep it off for good. And so I know in your book, You Thrive, you have a chapter devoted specifically to the body, to the student body, where you focus on exercise, sleep, and nutrition. How big of a role does nutrition, exercise, and sleep play in the success of students? Great question. Um, well, it's, it's, it's an interesting one to argue too, because you know when we're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, we're invincible. Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, nothing, we are, we're, we're peak physical form. Well, unless you're Tom Hefner six months into college. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like nothing can hurt us. We, we can still fit into our skinny jeans, right? We still like, you know, we can mm-hmm. run forever. Um, and so we get there and we figure everything's going to be great. It plays a huge role. I mean, in our book, we, we, we put it into one chapter. Um, in our, in our class, you know, we have, it's pretty extensive in terms of how we teach it. So if we think about, something as simple as sleep, right? And we look at statistics on students who get more or less than seven hours. Uh, the GPAs are vastly different, mm. right? As in they're higher when we get more sleep. And we look and we sort of peel away one layer. We find that uh, if you look at a study of students who were taught uh, words in a foreign language, for example, and then some of them, half of them, are allowed to nap, or sleep through the night, and the other half are not. I'm not talking about an all-nighter. I'm just talking about just going through their day. The folks who get sleep uh, retain more of those words. Uh, we also we see boosts in creativity. We see boosts in um, other other STEM fields too. The the ability to to process um, more complex and even simple mathematical problems <laughs> increase when we when we get sleep. Uh, test scores and GPA as it makes sense are better when we sleep and. It's very similar when we look at nutrition. Those students who ate something, anything before a test in the morning, and we're not, I'm not talking like a healthy, solid eggs and toast, whole wheats, no butter, but I'm talking like couch pizza, pop tarts, doesn't matter. You know, when they eat something in the morning, they do better. Mm. Now, right? So, um, not that I'm advocating for pop tarts, although they are delicious. Very um, delicious. Right? They are. <laughs> but the idea of just getting food into your body is really, really important. And when it comes to exercise, we see very similar stuff as well. Uh, John Rady, who's done so much wonderful work at Harvard on exercise, his book Spark talks quite a bit about this. But uh, those students who exercise on a regular basis have uh, higher test scores, higher GPAs as well. So simply from a testing perspective, we have a pretty robust amount of research that talks about how students do better. Now, if you want to talk about a psychological perspective, we can do that as well, which is to say that. Uh, students who exercise tend to um, feel better about themselves and not just physically, but in part, it's because they have uh, they have an idea that they can control the outcome of uh, their experience. Right. They also tend to exercise not alone, but with other people. So you're trying to to, to integrate relationships into that process mm-hmm. as well. Um, also, if you look at um, research on eating people who to eat meals with others, well, they're cultivating, you know, those relationships and they're getting benefits as well. So, you know, the opportunities are not just grades, but to be able to do things with other people. I'm not going to bring up, I've talked about exercising with other people. I've talked about eating with other people. I'm not going to talk about sleeping with other people because it has, 
whole other connotations. But um, <laughs> the idea is that all three of those actually have a pretty profound effect. That being said, you know, for a parent who's listening out there, potentially turn around and say, um, I need you to sleep more. I need you to eat better at college. You know, the odds of that working are pretty slim. Well, yeah, like, get, thanks, get in line. Mom. I mean, how many how many uh, parents have said that? My parents would say that. Like, you're not eating enough. You're <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're not eating enough. You're not sleeping. Get some more sleep. And you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. So, you know, the idea is to help them. What are the little things that you can do, right? What are the little things you can do? So can you show them some of the data? Sometimes that's it, right? Sometimes it's just saying, you know, this is what happens when you take a 10-minute nap before a test, right? Uh, can you show them the data? And help them send them a care package where it's full of things that are healthy choices for their mornings, you know, um, mm-hmm. that they can at least grab on the go, you know, get them a sub- uh, subscription to a, you know, a fruit club, you know, so at least it's there in front of them before mm-hmm. they leave their dorm, you know, there's some options that we can certainly offer them. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, the better we, the, be- the better we treat our body, the more successful people are, students are not only in the classroom, but also, um, outside of the classroom as well. I think it helps too with the form of mastery, right? Uh, Brandon oh, yeah. Collinsworth, our, 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 our fellow classmate, he was on the show a while back and he talked about just the, the principle of being able to master your body through exercise. And he said, if I figured out or I discovered that if I could master my body, I could do anything else. And there's power in that of being able to like, Hey, look, you know, I am doing this exercise. I am doing this weightlifting or I am doing whatever the, that thing is for you. Um, and giving you that sense of accomplishment, achievement, mastery that gives you so much more confidence that affects all the kind of areas of your life, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. I mean, the benefits, as you point out, definitely mastery, the ability to do it with other people, the benefits that you see outside of what you're mastering for your physical self are pretty tremendous. You know, and also, and also, I mean, look, if even you look at, uh, at non-student populations and, and the effect of exercise on mild to moderate depression, mm-hmm. um, study out of Duke shows that, and uh, which has been replicated numerous times, shows that uh, regular exercise can have tremendous benefits that mirror uh, pharmaceuticals that are that are commonly prescribed. Yeah. That being said, I don't want to say that pharmaceuticals are not important. In so many cases, they are tremendously important. But what these, what these, uh, what this research also shows is that after the studies are done, after the prescriptions are pulled, after when people no longer have to do the exercise, the benefits go on. Because to your point, we realize we can master something and we have control. We can make the difference when we go out and exercise on a regular basis. And that's, that's really important. Dan, I want to kind of pivot back to something we talked about earlier and thinking about the unique experience of incoming freshmen nowadays. What are the two or three biggest obstacles a student will face in the first year of college? Oof. You think? (laughs) So let's, let's, let's start with day one. Day one of college. And I don't mean the day that after you've arrived, I mean the day you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you're getting to a campus. You know, basically, if, if, if someone is going to college, they've clearly done something well to, to earn it, right? They have, studied enough to get there. They have formed skills for studying, for test taking, critical thinking. There's a chance that they have a social group back in high school that was supportive um, in some capacity. There's, uh, they had, they had most likely they had a semi-regular schedule and things they could count on. I know when I get up in the morning, there'll be breakfast on the table or 
I know when I get home at night, there'll be dinner there. You know, sort of I can expect I, I can manage around everything else because everything else is often much else is taken care of. When you get to college, that all changes. All right. So for so many students, unless you're still living at home, which many are, all of a sudden everything's brand new. You show up to campus that first day. You you don't know where you'll be eating that night. You don't know who you'll be eating with that night. You don't know where your dorm is. You don't know where your classes are, if you've even chosen them yet. You don't even know the person you're sleeping with that, well, you know, as I'm, I'm talking about a roommate, clearly. <laughs> so, uh, but everything is brand new. So trying to, so expecting that one is going to be as successful during that first semester in college as someone was in high school in a way that got them to college is really challenging. That I would say is the biggest challenge, just the overwhelming amount of change. Are there strategies or things that they can do to, if they know that's coming, if they know that's a challenge to try to combat that or overcome that challenge? I, I would say, you know, num- number one would be understanding that it's a challenge, right? Accepting the fact that everything's going to be brand new mm-hmm. and knowing there, there will be some challenging moments. I would go back to the idea of making sure that they find a club or a group quickly because that social circle is huge for them. And I would try to put some sort of routine to it all. That is to say, have a few things that are kind of touchstones for them, knowing that there are certain things that they like to have for breakfast that make them feel good before Mm -hmm. they go, whatever it might be. So they can count on something like that. Pop tarts, (laughs) preferably if you're listening, uh, non-frosted strawberry. (laughs) Um, Maple brown sugar, just throwing it out there. New York (laughs) is. So right, so to be able to set those kind of um, some sort of regularity is really key. Be able to have those friends is really really key. Uh, To be able to you know even make regular calls home, right? Just knowing that they have sort of that touchstone of their folk, not every day necessarily, but knowing that uh, whether it's a daily or a weekly or whatever kind of basis, to be able to know they can reach out and be like, hey, just letting you know this is what's going on right now. So they have some sort of touchstone to, to what to what worked before. I think those things are are really, really key. Also think about the, the things that really helped them succeed when they were in high school. You know, there's so much change that it's easy to forget those things. But what are some of the study habits you had in high school, right? What is it that worked for you? Were you part of a study group? There's a good chance that people are because we tend to find that people who are in study groups have, um, have uh, a different kind of success, right? So is that something that you want to form right away? Uh, that kind of stuff. So well, as much as things will change, to be able to have those kind of touchstones consistently are going to be important. Well, look, before I move on to some questions not directly related to the book, what else from your book would you like us to know? Or what else do you think like, hey, you asked me about these things, but this thing over here, this is really, really important. So, you know, I, I, I imagine that I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe people haven't touched it on, on this yet on the podcast. You, it goes back to the idea of happiness. People tend to think that they're going to be thrilled and happy and have a wonderful four years because they're going to have so much fun in college. And while fun is a really important part, clearly, (laughs) um, if that's all we're shooting for, then we're setting ourselves at a big disadvantage. You know, having well-being or thriving in college is far more than just happiness or fun. And um, what we talk about in the book and what we talk about in class and what we talk about constantly is really understanding kind of the rich matrix that makes up well-being. Now, the matrix we use in the book, one that you're very familiar with, Tom, and many of the listeners might be as well, is PERMA, mm-hmm. right? PERMA, um, Martin Seligman's, um, 
acronym for um, positive emotions, engagement, uh, positive relationships, uh, meaning and accomplishment or achievement. And we bring that up because these are five. This is one matrix of many suggested matrices. But this is the one we bring up because it's pretty simple. And it's one that students and parents alike can work with. That is to say that if we think about it, what we tend to think of is just the P, positive emotions. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. But let's say that you have, you're happy, but you have no one to share it with, the R. It's kind of tough to be thriving, right? Let's say that you have those positive emotions, but you're not really engaged in much. You're not, you don't find anything particularly interesting, the E, or gripping. It's kind of hard to be thriving. So the way we explain it to our students is that they're like buckets and they don't all have to be overflowing, but you need to have at least a drop in each bucket in order to be thriving. So, uh, and, and by the way, everyone's, everyone's matrix is going to be different. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you might really thrive on accomplishment, Tom, and relationships are important to you, but not as key, but I might be all about relationships and I do need some accomplishment. So Although the the word is now now means a whole bunch of different things, <laughs> what I've said for a long time is look, this is the cheesiest line you're going to hear from a professor your entire college career. But you're all beautiful little snowflakes, right? <laughs> that is, right? You're all you're all different in your own way, and that in that we'll all need different amounts in our buckets to be thriving. But at the end of the day, perm is so important because. We can, we can tell our students, look, if you are having a wonderful time, if you're super happy, but you're still feeling something's lacking, go back to your PERMA. Get a sense of where, what you might be missing. If you have wonderful relationships, but you're not feeling like you're accomplishing much, that might be it. Where is your bucket empty? So it gives them a reference point to go back and think, okay, if I think about thriving in terms of these five elements, right? And look, other people will add other things, vitality or, or, you know, physical well-being. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I, I totally laud them for that. Wonderful. But the understanding that it's not just one thing, that it's multiple things, and when we can keep our eyes on those, that is how we can potentially um, uh, move towards more consistent uh, levels of uh, thriving and well-being. Uh, fantastic. So I think that that's really key. That's why we're not calling it, you know, you happy, <laughs> but rather you thrive, because thrive is a, is a much more complex, much richer um, idea that I think also, uh, not that I think, but also extends throughout the lifespan. You know, us as, you know, as, as, as 40 something. So you 40 something yet, Tom? Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I'm rapidly so, so, so approaching me that. 40 something and, and you as a 50 something, Tom. Um, <laughs> no, so I mean, so no matter what, when it is, any listener can think about where are we on this, on these levels of emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning and accomplishment and think, you know what, if I'm, I'm bone dry in one of these areas, that might be part of the reason why I'm, why I'm really challenged. So that, I think that, that's, that's, I think that's an important, it's an important point to keep in mind. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really a really really important point because we all need guideposts, we all need goalposts and yeah. reference posts. Or I, I just want to say post a lot there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in the Washington area, Washington Post, says Washington that. Post. Yeah. I mean, I'll just, yeah. I'll just keep adding it uh, all day. But I think that's important just to give people the awareness um, so that they do have something to fall back on. Well, look, uh, it's time for my favorite part of the show. And, and this is where we talk about... This is what, Wait, is this when we dance? <laughs> this is when we dance, brother. This is when we salsa. This is what... No, um, that's for later. No. So this is where uh, we talk about what I think is maybe, you know, one of the best habits we can adopt today. And, and that's the habit of reading. And Dan, I want you to think about the books you've really loved over the years. And I know this is difficult for you because you're a voracious reader, but indulge me. If you will, what are the yes. two or three books that have impacted you the most? Well, first of all, I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so 
That's a great question. That's a really hard question. And I have to, to be totally frank. I'm actually, I'm pacing around uh, my office right now and I have this massive bookshelf. So I've just paused directly <laughs> in front of this bookshelf and I'm thinking, wow, am I overwhelmed right now? Um, but uh, there are a couple of books that, that come to mind and they have stuck with me. They've been really pivotal for me. Um, and, uh, and I don't know how much time we have with this. I can share the, something of the pivots, uh, how they, how they changed. Um, I'll, I'll keep that to something of a minimum. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the first ones was um, a book called Wind, Sand, and Stars, uh, and that is a book by San Exupery, the same author of The Little Prince. Now, we we many people tend to think about San Exupery in terms of The Little Prince. It's a sweet, uh, but 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 meaningful mm-hmm. um, illustrated book. Wind, Sand, and Stars was written. He was a mail pilot. He flew the mail from France to North Africa. Uh, and this okay. is back in open cockpit day. So they navigated by stars and it was this it, it is this beautifully written observation on humanity on life some of the passages one in particular talks about how as we get older our our clay tends to harden and when that happens there's no going back right you, so so it's so important to keep ourselves malleable to keep ourselves he doesn't say open but that's basically the idea i remember reading this when I was still in the music business and thinking, I cannot let that happen to myself. I need to stay open. I need to stay, uh, to understand what possibilities are, to, to not bury my head so deeply that I wake up one day, look around and, and realize life's passed me by. And so it, it's so beautifully and elegantly written. And yet the message of this man who, who had a little shack, uh, at a place called Cape Juby, which is on, on the African coast where he, he would write literally a shack where he would write and then get back in his plane and fly back to France, um, <laughs> you know, but write this extraordinary array of things was was not lost on me. So the concept of of never knowing what's coming your way, of being open, of integrating your interests together, I think really came from that. So Wind, Sand, and Stars was was really tremendous. Okay, um, I'd say another uh, and very pivotal was a book called is, is a book called The Gift um, by Lewis Hyde. And you know, it's funny. I had Lewis Hyde as a professor in in undergrad when I was at Kenyan College. Yeah, Kenyan. <laughs> and um go lords and go lords. uh there are like six of us out there go lords um and Hyde would teach half of his year at Kenyon and half of his year at Harvard and uh I had a wonderful eight person class with him but but years later and I did not know this book from him years later I was I, I had written about 100 pages of my own thing and I'd gone to see my college advisor still very close friends and a man named Ron Sharp who at this point had gone to Vassar um and we were talking and he said, this is really, there's some really terrific writing in here. And I was thinking, why would anyone want to hear what I had to say? After I was thinking, I said it. Um, I, I, I include a number of uh, words that cannot be used on your program. It's a family program. You know, and, and Ron being the wonderful editor, a wonderful friend, wonderful teacher, mentor, former editor of the Kenyan Review that he was, didn't say, didn't explain to me why. He just said, there's a book I want you to read. And he recommended The Gift. And The Gift is this wonderful uh, extended kind of essay meditation on um, what it is that we give to the world and why do we give things to the world. Really the concept of what happens when we give of ourselves because we want to as opposed to what happens when we give of ourselves because we're expecting something in return, mm. right? So if you're an artist and you're painting something because you feel compelled to do so, as opposed to someone saying, I'm going to commission a work from you and this is what I want to look like. There's a massive difference, right? If we look at, as he starts his book out, every Harlequin romance novel um, 
it's so formulaic. No one kisses until page 80 something. No, nothing else happens until page 110, always. But yet people buy them all the time. Do we never consider them arts, right? Because there's this formula. So how do we create of our own selves and give to the world in a way we don't expect return? But basically, what's our gift? And that really freed me up to go to, to the next place, to, to write the book, to go on with other work that I was doing, to, to say no to a lot of opportunities that would have paid well, but that I didn't find engaging, mm. um, often much to my family's chagrin. But still, um, <laughs> ultimately, it was his book, The Gift, was a gift and that, that allowed me to uh, sort of see the world very differently. Mm. You know, I, I, I go with those two. The, you know, I have to say the, the one other, and it, it's less of a full book, but it's an idea, um, was when I started reading Peter Drucker. Ah. And, you know, Peter Drucker, and, you know, clearly, you know, um, Tom, you, you know who he is. For those yep. who don't, he's he's uh, sort of the grandfather of, of business management. I don't know if that's, that's quite the right way to, to put it. Um, I mean, he's he definitely was, uh, one of the most iconic minds and thought leaders of, of business management, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's a graduate school out of Claremont University named after him. It was a brilliant thing. And, and he he brought up such an important question. One of the things I was reading, and it was such a simple question. That's one of the things I always loved about him. I always think of Drucker like Yoda. You know, he's like, <laughs> other, you know, he, he would say one thing. And I'm like, that's incredibly profound. You're not answering any of my questions, but you're giving me great <laughs> questions to ask of myself moving forward and ask of others moving forward. And the number one question that he asks in the five most essential questions is why? Now, with all due respect to uh, another um, person out there who has talked about why extensively. Um, <laughs> Simon Sinek. <laughs> hello. Yes, maybe. Um, I always I, I got to say, I wonder about that. I'm like, actually, I, when, I, when I first heard that talk, I thought, that's Drucker. Yeah. And that is the great question, which is why his question was, why do we exist as a company? Right. And that's such, such an important question to ask as a company. Um, but what he was really saying, I think, in addition to that was, why are we here? <laughs> Why do we exist as a human being? Mm -hmm. And asking that question, what is our purpose? What is it that we are meant to do here? And when I read that, it's something that's guided me for so long that it, 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 even though it's not the entire – I mean I, I would recommend The Essential Drucker, which is a, a brilliant compilation of kind of his best writings. Um, but the question of, of why do we do what we do? Why are we here? You know, all that has been, has been instrumental. It's a question I ask my students. It's a question I ask my clients. Um, it's a question I ask my son. Um, not why are you here? He's only 10 years old, but, um, you know, <laughs> hey, but the kid, why, why are you here? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, I could have sworn that you and mom anyway. So, um, <laughs> but that, that's been so key. So, so Drucker's question on why as a guiding principle has been terrific. So I think if I were going to look back at all three of those, um, the first being wind, sand, and stars, and the idea of never letting yourself get set as and, and hardened, but mm -hmm. always remaining open. The gift, what is it that I give to the world uh, of myself? What do I love to share with the world? And finally, the Peter Drucker uh, question of why? Why do I exist? What's my purpose here? How can I help others? And when I think back about my career from music management um, to coaching, working with execs and athletes and, and other high performers to now uh, working with uh, so many students, the theme has been it's about helping people realize their potential. That's why I'm here and not just on stage or on the field or in the boardroom but uh, or in the classroom, but throughout their lives. I think that's so important. And I just want to reemphasize that once again, because I think that last question, the the why, people avoid that. It's easier just to kind of go on autopilot and be like, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. And and we can all, 
we're all, you know, a lot of us are very successful and you can think about the things that you want to do and accomplish to take that step back and give yourself the time and space. Because when you ask yourself why, it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. And and to really lean into it, it can be very uncomfortable. There's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty when you first start to explore that. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't think I could have put a better bow on that uh, than you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautifully put bow. And, I, you know, I, Tom, I just say I agree with you 100%. Clearly, we, we agree. And I'd also just add that it's a wonderful question because it changes every day, right? There's little things that change every day, right? So, you know, um, if we stop and we ask that question once and we don't come back for 20 years, that's we're setting ourselves up for some some real issues mm-hmm. every day. How, you know, why am I doing this? That's right. Okay. Now I have a child. Now I understand it differently. Now I have a partner. Now I understand it differently. Probably a different order. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> <laughs> those kind of things. So, um, but, but yeah. So thank you. No, and it's, it's interesting. I'll just say that Tom, I think it's one of the reasons why you and I have, uh, one of the ways that one of the reasons we, what we bonded so well is because these are questions that have been important to us mm-hmm. and, and that we've been able to ask, even though they can be incredibly challenging. Uh, in so many ways to answer. A hundred percent. I'll yes and yeah. that all day long. Well, look, Dan, this has been fantastic. I'm taking away a ton of really good insights for myself and also for my kids who I hope will go to college one day. So taking <laughs> taking some mental notes, taking some physical notes uh, for hopefully I'll be a better parent when I get there and, and integrate some of this advice. But thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Oh my gosh. It, thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. You can connect with Dan Lerner online through his website, daniellerner.com. All the links and resources Dan and I discussed can be found at the page created just for this episode. That includes a link to the website for his book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash four five. And finally, just a reminder, if you love the show, And if you enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. I can't tell you how much that really helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners just like you. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.